The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Uh, we're working through uh, Romans 3, 9 through 20, as you've already seen. And, uh, you know, at the end of our Pledge of Allegiance, it says that we want justice for all, right? I mean, we like that concept of justice for all. Um, we think we do um, until we realize that it includes condemnation. And um, that's really what the text is about today. And Paul has been showing us that that we all are in the same boat, that we have equal justice with God, that God is not a partial judge, that God dispenses his justice, his justice impartially, that uh, he doesn't favor the Jews uh, when it comes to judgment because he's done some special things for the Jews, uh, but that doesn't mean that he gives them partial treatment. Uh, he's not partial against atheists um, because of their refusal to acknowledge him. And that's really what Paul's been saying. And we've been talking about it in terms of three categories. If you remember how we've been seeing Paul and the flow of the, the letter that we've been studying, the first 16 verses really was building up to the importance of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes and he says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And so that's his point is, listen, you're made right with God by faith. And then he goes from 118 all the way till the end of our text today, Romans 3:20, detailing out just how unrighteous we are and how desperately we need grace. In 118 through 32, we called it the atheist, the person who says in their heart, there is no God who denies what is clearly seen through nature and creation and the human body and all the miraculous work of God, that the natural response should be to fall on our knees and worship God and say, surely there is a God that we should seek. And instead they say, there's no God. And Paul said to them, yes, there is. You're without excuse. You're condemned. And then to the moralist, he said, those of you who are judging, this is 2-1, those of you who are passing judgment on that person who says there's no God, you're no better off when it comes to judgment because you're not judging, you're, God's not going to judge you on a relative scale comparing you to other people. If that were the case, we would all find someone worse than us and say, well, I'm going to be good because I'm not as bad as they are. And Paul says, no, that's not how it works. You're going to be judged according to perfection, toward Christ. He says, so you moralists who think you're better than that person, that atheist, you're in the same boat. You're judged guilty, unrighteous, and condemned. And then he goes in chapter 2, verse 17, up until where we are today. He's been focusing on the Jew. And that, in particular, is the, the person who was born of the lineage of Abraham, was circumcised on the eighth day, had the Jewish scriptures, the word of God, had many, many blessings as a Jew and was chosen in a special way to be used by God. And we've equated that to the very religious group in here, most likely, that most people here have been born to a Christian family, been born into a place that has encouraged Christianity. You've been raised in a Christian church. You've been taught the Christian scriptures. You've participated in some form of the Christian baptism. And maybe you've memorized a lot of Christian scriptures. Maybe you're a Christian preacher. Paul has said to you, you're no better off 
guilty. That's been his point from 118 all the way up till today, that there is no partiality with God. All are condemned guilty and will be judged for that. And so he's going to summarize that today. And we have two basic, simple points compared to the confusing verses of the last couple of weeks. This is very straightforward. And it's simply this. We all need grace. That's the point. Everyone needs grace. And when you build a church on grace, instead of on earning righteousness, instead of on moralism, instead of on religious behavior, if this church is built on the foundation of God's grace, this becomes the most amazing place on the planet. Because everybody here is just thankful for God saving them through faith in Jesus Christ and there's no comparing, there's no comparing, there's no boasting. That's where Paul's going to go with all this. Is look, there's no boasting about your works because we're all in the same boat. We're saved by grace. There's no comparison, there's no condemning, there's no judging. We're just all praising God for the grace shown us through faith in Jesus Christ. So we all need grace. Two very simple points that we're going to see. Paul gives us two reasons that we all need grace. The first reason we all need grace, he's been making it very clear, is that we're all unrighteous. We're all unrighteous. Look at verse 9. He says, well, what then are we, and I think he's talking about the Jews, are we Jews better than they, the Gentiles? Paul clarifies, no, not at all. For we've already charged both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. What is he saying in verse 9? What then are we better than the Gentiles? What he's doing is in the flow of the letter in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, well then, if the Jew, if being a Jew doesn't make you right with God, then what advantage is there to being the Jew? And he says, there's great advantage. You had the words of God. And he's going to stop, interrupt himself for several chapters. And then in chapter 9, he's going to pick up on that. What advantage is there to being a Jew? And so he's saying, there is great advantage to being a Jew. This is similar to saying... If you said, oh, well, if, if being born in a Christian family and going to a Christian church and Christian baptism and Christmas scriptures don't make me right with God, then what advantage was all that? And I would say it's great advantage. And then you would say, well, so are we better off? No, you're not better off. You're not better off in terms of righteousness and judgment and being made right with God simply by having those advantages. Well, why not? Well, because we're all under sin. And that's what he's going to argue today. So he's going to explain the reason that you're not better off by simply being born in a Christian family and having the Christian scriptures and all these blessings. They're great blessings, but that you're not better off just by having those. Why? Because you, the moralist, the religious, the atheist, every single person on the face of this earth is under sin. Okay, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be under sin? And that's where Paul is going to explain to us today what he means when he says that all of us are unrighteous because we are all under sin. The first thing we see is he quotes six different Old Testament passages. Five of them are from Psalms. One of them is from Isaiah. And what is he doing with all these verses in 10 through 18 where he's quoting these scriptures? Basically, he's defining what he means when he says we're all under sin. I'm going to break it down in three categories. Christopher Ashe in his commentary pointed out this, and I really liked it. The first shows the condition of our heart, and then flowing from that heart is the condition of our speech, and then from that is our way of life. 
First, we see we're all under sin means that we all have corrupt hearts. Look at verses 10 through 12, where he quotes Psalm 14, 1 through 3. He says, as it is written in the Psalms, quoting Psalm 14, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That's pretty comprehensive. These verses focus on the internal problem, which is often referred to in the scriptures as the heart. The heart is the seat of understanding. The heart is the place of seeking In fact, Paul didn't actually quote the entire Psalm 14.1. The first verses of Psalm 14.1, if you went back in your scriptures and looked at it, says this, and that confirms what I'm thinking about the heart. He says in Psalm 14.1, The fool says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so what he's saying, first of all, being under sin, all of us, is what the psalmist said, is that we are all foolish in our hearts. We say there is no God. We do not seek after God. We are not right with God. We do not have understanding about God. We are under sin. This is basically the same thing Paul said about the atheist, if you will, in 118. He says they all say there is no God. They suppress the truth. Now he's saying all of us do that. All of us say that in our heart. And so he says in in this text, you need to understand that you're no better off than that person that you point to out there that is, in your mindset, they are unrighteous. And Paul's saying, yeah, so are you. Because you have a heart problem. You have a heart that says that. And what do we know the scripture says about the heart? Scripture says... Out of the mouth overflows the heart. Out of the heart flows your lifestyle. And so what Paul is doing is he's going to get beyond the behavior, beyond the words. And he's saying underlying your speech problem, underlying your lifestyle problem is a heart problem. And this is what the scriptures has been doing from day one. When you read all the way back to the very first books of your Bible, Moses, looking forward, says, Oh, I long for the day that that hearts will be circumcised. The heart is the problem. It's not a New Testament issue. There's always in the scriptures is the heart is the problem of humanity. Paul, the I mean, David, the psalmist who who wrote Psalm 51, 5 says that behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. There's always been a heart problem. So Paul's making it clear that we all need grace because we all have a corrupt heart. We all suppress the truth of God, not just those overtly wicked people, but even those of us born into a Christian family who are doing a lot of good things, who have a very religious lifestyle... He says, we all have the same problem. We have a heart problem. Our hearts are corrupt. And out of the mouth overflows the heart. So the next section in verses 13 through 14, 
He talks about the throat, the tongues, the lips, and the mouth. Look at verse 13. He says, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Point is this. In Matthew 15, 18 through 19, Jesus said, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. Moving quickly, he says, not only does the heart corrupt the speech, but it also corrupts our way of life in verses 15 through 18. He's quoting Isaiah 59, Psalm 36. He says, their feet, this is the way of life, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And in the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. As Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. So what is Paul doing here? Paul is quoting six Old Testament scriptures. And those Old Testament scriptures, when you go back and read them, like I did every one of them in great context and great detail, those Old Testament Psalms were talking about the enemies of God. The prophets were speaking about the enemies of God and how corrupt and wicked they are. And Paul takes those and says, that's all of us. All of us are in that condition. We have corrupt hearts. Out of that corrupt heart flows our speech and our way of life. You know, I had the great privilege of walking and discipling someone that was a friend of mine from childhood all the way up and kind of parted ways and came back. And I was walking with him, helping him work through the gospel of Mark. And he came in one day and and he was just working through the, and he said, you know, I'm not a bad guy. And I was like, I know what you mean. He was like, he literally said, I I like, I'll help an old woman across the street. I don't steal. I try to be a nice guy. And the, Lord, the Holy Spirit just kind of pricked my conscience to say, there's the issue. What he went on to say is, the problem is I hang out with the wrong crowd. And when I go to those places, I start doing the things I shouldn't do. And I start saying things I shouldn't say. And if I would just hang out with people like you, Tracy, I'd be all right. And I'm like, no, dude, that's not how it works. And so I... Called him and they, he, he now tells everybody, now he's a believer and the Lord's done great things. And now he says, did he give you the Tracy talk? And, no, no, no. Actually, that's what they, staff call it, the Tracy talk. He called it. He said, did he give you the good guy speech? You're not a good guy. And so I called him. I said, hey, man, listen, I, this is going to come off wrong. I know you're not going to get it, but I just got to tell you something. He's like, yeah, what's that? I was like, you're not a good guy. He's like, what? I was like, last time we were together, you were telling me what a good guy you are. And I just want you to know, you're not a good guy. I said, I'm not a good guy. I said, the scriptures makes it clear, we're not good. And until we grasp that, we think the problem is our behavior and our speech. We need to understand salvation, being right with God, is not cleaning up our act. It's not cleaning up our speech. It's not, hey, stop cussing and stop living this way. That doesn't make you right with God. Those things just reveal there's a problem in here, the heart problem. And when that gets fixed, then those things start cleaning up as evidence of a new heart. 
And so that's what Paul is saying is all of us have a corrupt heart, which reveals itself through corrupt speech and through corrupt lifestyle. Now, as I continued to try to understand, because this is a very important phrase, saying everyone is under under sin uh, is somewhat challenging for people because it's how far do you take that? Is it so under sin? How depraved are you? How corrupt are you? And theologians have debated for that over the years. Let me just simply say that it's certainly at this point we need to understand it demonstrates our need for grace. Our need for faith in Christ alone. And as we read the scriptures, we will start to look more and more. And I'm praying, Lord, help me understand exactly what this means. But here's more on what it means. I read ahead in Romans chapter 5, 6 through 12. And he starts, when he starts talking about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us, he talks about the condition we were in As he pulled us out of it. And so it helps us understand more about under sin. For instance, in Romans 5, 6 through 12, we see what we were saved from when we trusted Christ. He says in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. So we were under his wrath. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we're starting to get a picture of what it means to be under sin. Helpless, ungodly, sinners, considered enemies, destined to death, sinners. Romans 6.14, Paul speaks about sin as being a master. In Romans 6.17, he says, before Christ You were a slave to sin. And in chapter 7, he talks about being under sin, under the law, as contrasted to being under grace. So wherever you fall on the spectrum of how depraved we are, it must include a desperate need for grace. All of this helps us understand what Paul means when he says we are all under sin. It means our hearts are corrupt because we suppress the truth about God. And in doing so, our speech and our lifestyle is corrupt. And in this condition, we are ungodly people. We are helpless to save ourselves. We are sinners 
We are destined to die separated from God. We are accounted among the enemies of God. And no matter how religious we are or how Christian we act, even though we don't act as wickedly as we possibly could act, we are still in desperate need of grace. Our hearts are corrupt. We are all under sin. We are all unrighteous and we all need God's grace. Amen. The problem is not simply fixed by acting better. We need a radical heart transformation that God does in his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So we're all unrighteous. That's the first reason we need grace. The second reason follows logically. We're all unrighteous and we are all unable to earn righteousness. That's his point. We're all unrighteous and we're all unable to earn righteousness. So we need grace. In verses 19 and 20, we see this point that we're unable to earn righteousness. The first thing we want to look at in verse 19, I'm going to word it this way. He's basically saying this. If Jews couldn't earn righteousness, nobody can earn righteousness. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, look, let's talk about the Jews. He does this a lot. Salvation comes to the Jew, then the Gentile. Judgment comes to the Jew, then the Gentile. God is doing his work with everyone through the Jews. And there's a way that he likes to work. And then he says, basically in verse 19, so whatever the law says to the Jew, it says to everyone. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, i.e. the Jews. Why? So that every single mouth may be closed and all of the world may be accountable to God. In verse 19, Paul makes the point that the law shuts the mouth of the Jew. This is a picturing of a, a courtroom scene where the defendant stands before the judge and he says, what do you have to say for yourself? And he, the Jew cannot say, well, I kept the law. I'm right with you. It shuts his mouth. And then he says, now he makes this transition from the Jew to everyone. And he says, so if his mouth is shut, surely everyone's mouth is shut. Because we've already said that they had the advantage of having the law. So if they aren't made right by their works, surely no one is made right. So every mouth is shut. All the world becomes accountable to God. But why? Why is that? Why do the Jews have no defense? And therefore, why do none of us, why do all of us have no defense? Well, in verse 20, basically what he says is this. The law was never meant for making a person righteous. It was never the plan. God never gave the law to make someone righteous. And see, a lot of us misunderstand this point. A lot of us think Old Testament, God saved through the law. New Testament, God saves through grace. Wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. God has always saved by grace through faith in his provision. And so what did the law, what is the role of the law? It was never meant to make one right. That's what he's saying in verse 20. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. 
And then he says another purpose of the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law has never justified anyone. The Jew opens his mouth on judgment day. And for, for that matter, anyone who opens their mouth on judgment day and tries to justify themselves by saying how good they've been, how well they've kept the rules, God will say, shut your mouth. That's never made anyone right. Why? Well, because the law was never given for that reason. That's a perversion of the law. We see this in scriptures. When you read the story of the Bible, Abraham was told to circumcise himself and then from then on the children on the eighth day. Was that before or after Abraham was made a promise and believed God and by faith was declared righteous? It was after. He was already declared righteous by faith in God's promised provision. And then God gave him law, circumcision. Now, the people of Israel, did they get the law after they were saved from Egypt or before? It was after salvation. Was that after they had trusted God and his provision of the blood, which would save their firstborn? Or after? It was after, right? God gave them the law as the redeemed people. It was never meant, hey, if you keep this law, I will then redeem you. As the redeemed people of God, the people of faith, came to Mount Sinai, God gave them the law. They were already following him. So, the law never was designed to be a pathway of being made righteous with God. Well, then what was the law for? The law, through the law comes the knowledge of sin, Paul says. The law provided God's commands... The law provided God's will. The law provided God's holy standard. The law provided a sacrificial system where they could enjoy intimacy with God and the blessings of God. And so when the Israelite came to the altar to sacrifice the blood of an animal, here's what his thought process was if he was getting it right. It was praise God for his mercy and grace, that I, through this provision of a substitute sacrifice, can enjoy intimacy with God. I am banking on God honoring his word that he will accept the blood of this innocent lamb on my behalf. That's exactly how we're saved. He was not saying, hope this one's good enough. Hope I've done something really, hope I'm holding my mouth just right. To make God happy with me. I hope I've done enough to climb that ladder of righteousness. No. It was his act of faith that he made the sacrifice. It was his act of relying only on God's mercy. And so in that act, it was a constant reminder of sin and the need for a substitute sacrifice. That's what the law does. It points the way, revealing we're not going to be perfect. It points his holy standard, revealing we fall short of his standard. It points to our continual need for the grace of God and a substitute sacrifice. So the law never made a person right with God. The commands of Scripture never make a person right with God. They only show you the path of holiness the holy standard, 
the path of blessing and the continual failure on our part to meet up to it perfectly and the constant reminder of the need for a substitute sacrifice provided by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul's point is clear. We all need grace. That atheist out there who is just bad-mouthing God, he needs grace. The moralist who thinks he's better than that atheist, he needs grace. The religious person who's doing a lot of really good-looking religious deeds, he needs grace. We all need grace. None of us make ourselves right with God by our religious deeds. God has surely blessed us. He has blessed us so much to be in a somewhat Christian nation, to have so many Christian privileges, to have the Christian scriptures, to have a Christian family and Christian friends and Christian church and Christian community and Christian baptism. Praise God for all that. But all of that, should be a constant reminder that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, period. For Paul says in Romans 5, while we were still helpless, this is how much God loves you. While you're helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the religious? No. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But you ain't good, is what he's saying. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... While we were yet under sin, while we were yet enemies, helpless, not seeking him, suppressing the truth, while we were not cleaning ourselves up and making ourselves presentable to God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, will we shall be saved from the coming wrath of God through him. Have you trusted Christ? The point today is clear. Every single person needs grace. And he gives that simply by trusting Christ. Today, you can receive the righteousness of God by praying, God, I'm trusting solely in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are all under condemnation. What does he say in Romans 8, 1? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Are you in Christ? Because that's when the condemnation is poured out on himself for you. And then by faith, you receive the gift of righteousness. Don't leave here today without receiving the best gift on the face of the planet. God's righteousness through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this 
beautiful truth that though it's hard to receive, to admit, many times we like to point at others and make ourselves feel like we're not as bad simply because we haven't done as many bad things. But Lord, your word to us today is it's not about the actions or the words. It's about the heart and all of us have corrupt hearts. And we can talk and disagree and debate about just what that means. And, but Lord, help us not miss the point that we need faith in Jesus Christ to be made right with God. And Lord, Lord, then help us every day, those of us who have trusted in Christ and had the wrath poured out on Jesus and been given the righteousness of God as a gift, amazing, amazing grace. May we just celebrate that. And may that grace motivate us to share with friends and to live a life of holiness. And Lord, I pray that during this song, as we talk about coming to the altar and laying down our burdens, I pray that people will, in their mind and in their hearts, come to your altar and lay down their burdens and be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.